Welcome to the CPD Day today. Thanks for the guys that um, flew down from Joburg or from other places. Um, I'm glad we could give you a nice day today. I hope you all have a great day. It's a great program. Thanks, Alex, for putting it together and for all the speakers that have agreed to participate. Over to you, Alex. Hi, thanks, everyone. Um, thanks again just to the speakers. It's been great getting them to agree to speak today. Um, if you look at the program, roughly the whole morning is around a topic that's quite topical, the sort of low-income area, um, expanding access, etc. It also touches a bit on cost drivers, which is also topical in the Competition Commission inquiry that carries on after lunch, um, where Barry looks at, at that sort of angle on that side. Um, and in the afternoon, we have a bit of a variety on other topics. Um, the first speaker, or maybe first sort of logistics, um, the agenda is on your tables, should be. We've got tea at, let me just touch, be sure. We've got tea at sort of 11 o'clock, uh, lunch at quarter to one. I must just say that lunch, I've made quite, quite a long lunch, 90 minutes, because I'm worried that this morning might be quite a, quite a topical session and quite a lot of debate and questions. So we've got some space in the agenda to allow for that. If we're actually on time and we have lunch, we might cut lunch a bit shorter just to cut the afternoon shorter. So we've got a bit of flexibility in, in that space. But lunch, quarter to one, we'll be back sort of 90 minutes later for the afternoon session. We're ending around just after five. Um, I hope you found the toilets. It's sort of right across. Um, there's parking tickets. The off parking is free, so you just ask at the, at the sort of desk outside. Um, and I think that's most logistics. So if there's anything else, please just ask me. That's true. So for your CBD points, please also just sign the register. I think it's on the desk. Is it? Well, we'll, we'll find out. So please sign that so we know you actually uh, get your CBD points. Um, moving to the speakers. So the first speaker is, is Roseanne. Uh, she's an independent consulting actually, also linked to Wits University. Um, she's been in the healthcare space since 1993. So I think she's well placed to touch on the first topic, which is sort of a limbs, revisiting the limbs process. Um, and I think she was particularly involved in that. So welcome, Roseanne. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for putting together the program. Thanks for nagging us on the slides. Um, and uh, good morning, everyone. So um, when I um, started putting together this presentation, I found that it actually wasn't um, the onerous task that I imagined it would be because I was able to take a lot of the presentations I've done since around 2007 and, um, and find that the slides are actually still quite relevant today. So it does seem to be a case that the more things change, the more they stay the same, or perhaps the more they stay the same, the more they change. But um, I think we've, we've, we've come some way, but it's also the purpose of this presentation is really to lay the groundwork to say, well, what is the thinking that has happened up to this point so that we don't find ourselves going around in circles? Um, and I think by, uh, by the end of this morning, we'll see the extent to which, to which we've been doing that, perhaps. But I think um, it was interesting when I revisited the, the LIMS um, report, which is still sitting there. There's a whole portal of information still sitting there on the um, Council for Medical Schemes website, um, where you can actually still look at, at all the, uh, the survey analysis and so forth that was done. And, um, and so I thought the, the purpose of my talk this morning is really just to, to lay the groundwork and to contextualize a bit um, what, is, what is coming after with um, the talk by Paresh and Emil and so forth. 
So, um, so first of all, in terms of the, um, the, the landscape, hopefully this is all um, uh, very familiar to you, that we have a, a very um, dis disproportionate um, level of coverage from the point of view of both tax coverage, which is when it comes to financing, expanding access to healthcare services is a, is a key consideration, and, um, and of course access to, um, to the private healthcare sector. And, um, and you'll see that um, I've, I've brought in here the, the political pressure around NHI, and, um, and I think we also have to be aware as we're debating in the, um, in the, in the space of low-cost benefit option provision that, um, that there, is, there, there is an issue of, of political pressure and, um, and sensitivity around keywords like the um, national health insurance, social health insurance, and so forth. So clearly when we look at, um, at, at social social health insurance around the world, we, um, we, we look at the literature, we find that there is commonality in these principles, um, that, that the, the principle of, uh, of prepayment when it comes to, to health care is very important in terms of, uh, of protection against this poverty trap that's associated with health events. So many of you will have done um, the, the health care course and will be familiar with me talking about the dual loss on illness, which of course is the the income loss as well as the, um, the additional expenses associated with illness. And of course, I think we're very familiar with, um, with studies that have done in, in various regions, particularly in, in countries like India and other developing markets, where um, there is a, a, a huge association between um, poverty and, um, and health events. So in South Africa, we also have particular challenges when it comes to expanding access to, to private healthcare cover. Um, we have challenges as far as our disease prevalence is concerned um, in terms of the cost of technology, the use of technology in, in medical treatment, particularly in the, in the private sector, um, in terms of the specialist and hospital um, billing arrangements, and I guess this will um, link to the work that's been done for the uh, market inquiry. Um, we have the medicine regulation issues. We have the PMBs in the, um, in the medical scheme space. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the anti-selection risks and, um, and of course, our, our, our great income disparities which affect um, affordability considerations. Okay, so where have we come from and where are we going? Um, so I'm talking today really about this, this LIM study that was conducted. Well, the report was in 2006. Most of the work was done in um, 2005 and the beginning of 2006. Um, we've had some um, PMB exemptions granted for, um, for certain mainly restricted membership schemes and bargaining council schemes. I'll talk a little bit about that. We've got Circular 9, it should be Circular 9 of 2015, um, which introduced this uh, discussion about um, the low-cost benefit option. We had a workshop on the, on the 12th of March where various um, industry inputs were, um, were provided. I understand there's been some discussions at, um, at ITAP. CMS feedback is hopefully going to follow my talk uh, right now. Um, so there's a, there's a process that's, um, that's underway that in some ways is, is quite historic, um, which is what I'm talking about, but also some, some new considerations. So back in 2005, we had this um, ministerial task team on, on social health insurance. Um, and between the, the task team and the Council for Medical Schemes, um, industry was asked to to conduct this um, study into a low-income medical scheme. So the, the industry was invited to put this together, 
and, um, and it was funded by the industry. So it wasn't actually a, um, a government or regulator-sponsored regulator study, um, but the terms of reference were specified by the, uh, the ministerial task team and the, social, and the um, CMS. And uh, the two elements of the terms of reference that I, I picked out there was, first of all, um, to identify the barriers to, to access. And I think this is something that we still are, um, are grappling with today. And the other interesting one was to identify areas of consensus. And I think perhaps that's, um, that's something that we should refer back to today, um, that what we really want to do is identify what, what are the issues that we are all agreeing on. And let's try and... Um, and, and agree those, the things that are workable, the things that we should push for, and then identify the things that perhaps still need to be de debated and discussed. And that's a good way to try and move something as complicated as this forward. So the project that was undertaken included quite a lot of work um, and real practical work. So there was, um, first of all, a, a household survey, which um, I'm sure many of you have seen, and I'm going to remind you of the the results um, of that survey. So it was a, a very extensive um, household survey, particularly looking at, at, um, at people who are considered to be in the target market for um, these low-income medical scheme options. There was also a detailed literature review which um, highlighted a number of learnings from, from other markets, and that's something that features on our agenda for today as well. Um, and then there was a demand model constructed in terms of the likely take-up and what the sensitivity factors were in terms of, um, of take-up from the demand side. And there was also work done on the supply side in terms of the capacity in the, um, on the provider side and what could be done to, um, to make that, um, the supply side more um, affordable and more available to, to this market. And the important thing is that it was, I think, a fairly open and transparent process, and there was, there was certainly my experience of it, there was a lot of, of cooperation um, amongst the parties who were, who were participating. So some of the, the key findings um, around um, the, the, the coverage um, at, a, at a very high level, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail to remind you about what some of those findings were. But, um, but certainly from a demand side, there was a strong interest in belonging to a medical scheme. So it wasn't as if um, there was an issue here that, um, that, that someone had decided that people need this and it was, you know, that whole insurance bought and, and uh, uh, sold and not bought argument. So people do want to have access to, to this coverage and I think the, um, the political weight around the national health insurance has certainly demonstrated um, that that's the case. And then, of course, there was this um, issue around the, um, the willingness to pay and the, the, the measurement of, um, of preference in terms of, of um, in-hospital versus out-of-hospital cover. And I think it's very important to stress at this point that although there was a preference um, expressed for, um, for out-of-hospital cover rather than in-hospital cover, that that was because of affordability constraints. I think, though, that is the value of the way in which the, um, the, the survey and the analysis and that willingness to pay um, analysis was done, um, is that, is that it, it didn't just ask people for the shopping list of what they would like. It made it clear that, um, obviously, there's a cost and people need to prioritize. And that's really what the idea behind um, that, that experiment was. So the willingness to pay or this discrete choice experiment was conducted in a way that, that people were making the decisions to prioritize purchases based on their affordability um, constraints. Now, the numbers here are in 2005 rands. So just to give you the factor, it's about 
when I, was, I actually went onto the Stats South Africa website to have a look. Um, if we're just purely on CPI, it's about a factor of a 1.66. So you can um, inter, incre increase these um, numbers by about two-thirds if you want to put them into today's money. But that's at CPI. So if we, um, if we, uh, if we, if we set CPI plus two, then we're probably talking about um, doubling them up just to make a comparison to the numbers you're going to see in, in later presentations. So you can see that in terms of that discrete choice um, experiment, in terms of, of almost forcing people to make a choice, um, that the, the, the starting point was the, the primary healthcare package, which actually initially didn't include um, specialist cover, and then there was the addition of the, um, the private hospital cover. And across the income bands that were included in, um, in the surveys, the, um, the choices were actually fairly consistent. So the target population that was identified um, for this work on the demand side was um, the two and a half to 6,000 Rand bracket. Again, if you escalate that at CPI, it translates to an upper bound of about 10,000 Rand um, a month. And, um, and I think in terms of the, the distribution, the numbers there, um, you can, it, it, it's fairly consistent today, but the, and the proportion you can see there of the, of the households, we had uh, 2.6 million households. Um, some, some, the households that had um, or that were extrapolated to have um, medical aid coverage was just around 500,000. Um, but that's, of course, at least one person. And in many cases, it was just one person um, in the household. That was one of the, the really interesting findings was um, that in many cases, it's, um, it's only one person in the household or perhaps one or two people that have coverage. So along with that went the question about what are the, the barriers to entry? What is preventing people from, um, from purchasing this cover that they've expressed the desire to have? Um, and and the, um, the groups were, uh, the households were stratified according to um, the segments, so no household member working, one or more working in the formal sector, one or, one or more working in the informal sector. And, um, and what's interesting to see is then the barriers to entry were classified, so there was a whole list of of um, people could specify why it was that they weren't um, purchasing medical cover, even though they'd expressed the desire for it. Um, so the first category of, of those barriers was the value proposition, so really an affordability-related um, constraint. And then the access issues, um, the choice, so feeling that they couldn't actually uh, choose the cover that they wanted, and then there's a range of, of other, which you always have to have. Um, but what I found interesting about this is that the um, when you look at the households with, um, with no member working and with one or more in the informal sector, um, then you see that the, um, the dominating factor is the value proposition. Um, but when you look at, um, at people in the formal sector, it's interesting to see that the access-related issues um, become um, more important. So it does suggest that any project in, this, in, in the space needs to consider both the demand side and the supply side from the point of view of developing something that is, um, is meaningful to the, to the target market. Um, at the same time, there was work done by, um, by FinScope. So um, the FinScope um, survey, which is sponsored by the, the Finmark Trust, about access to uh, financial services amongst um, lower income earners. And what I just wanted to highlight here is um, they had, they, they, um, they had the, the count here of, 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 um, of, people, of the people who have um, medical insurance, the kind of the overlaps or the cross-tabulations with other forms of, of cover. 
And what you can see is that of the people who had medical, some kind of medical insurance um, cover, 98% of them um, were banked. Um, of the people who were banked, only 17% of them had medical insurance cover, which, and, and you can see from the survey that most people in the survey were, were banked. But what's interesting is to see the, um, the, the cross-tabulations, which are illustrating that um, although there is this high demand, as it were, for, for, for medical insurance cover, there are other insurance-type covers that are, um, that are more dominant from a take-up point of view. I mean, we know that one of the unique features of the South African market is the high take-up of, um, of funeral cover. Um, also, you can see credit life coming up here. Even asset-type um, insurance covers um, are trumping out the, the medical covers, which, of course, is a function of those barriers to entry that we saw on the, on the previous slide. And just as an aside, of course, the only thing I think that's... Um, that's got lower take-up is savings, which is a sad feature of our South African market. Um, and then this is from the, um, the general household survey, um, which is looking at utilization levels. And this is where I want to highlight the anti-selection challenge, which we have to, to bear in mind in any kind of, um, of product structure in this, in this space. So in terms of low-income earners currently participating in the, in the medical scheme space, um, there are high levels of, 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 of anti-selection, which are evident in terms of, of this, um, this, this utilization. So you can see that you know, people are buying cover because they, they need it and they need to use it. And, um, and of course, the social solidarity mechanisms that are inherent in our current system um, then almost facilitate that kind of anti-selection. And so we have to be careful that in terms of what we are, if we're wanting to develop something that is sustainable and affordable, that we need to take into account um, the, the need to, to provide some kind of anti-selection um, protection in, in that structure um, as well. Another project that was undertaken at the time to try and, and understand um, what it was that, um, that, that, that people were, or how people were making their, their decisions um, particularly around health-seeking behavior, and this is more of the sort of um, social science uh, research that sometimes we actuaries are not quite so, so comfortable with, but still can be quite um, informative when it comes to how we design products and also, very importantly, how we communicate. Um, so the, the financial diaries um, results are also on that, um, on that portal, and, um, and it's interesting to look at, at, at some of the, um, the findings um, particularly around rural versus um, urban households and the association with, um, with, with chronic um, conditions. So you can see there, one in 10 households having medical insurance as opposed to um, one in six with some kind of, of other insurance, particularly um, the, the funeral insurance. Okay, so coming back to a little bit more detail on this, um, on this preference analysis, um, that um, in terms of in terms of the, the GP um, requirement, you can see that that was where the, the strongest um, preference was, was indicated. But that's, and, and at the time, it was kind of communicated that you know, people only want GP coverage. It was, it was the area of strongest preference. You can see that there was still preference indicated um, for, for private hospital and comprehensive cover, but that the discrete choice experiment um, identified that that was that the affordability constraints then out, outweighed that. 
Um, so the proposed plan is essentially included um, a list of services, and I'll, I'll show you the, the more detailed breakdown just now, in what that would be included. And you can see that it, it kind of looks like what you would generally see in a, in a, in a low-income option now, possibly on a, on a capitated basis. But what was quite important is that we identified at this time that, um, that not having private hospital coverage was possibly the best way to demarcate between what would be the low-income medical scheme and the sort of normal or um, higher income medical scheme environment. That rather than having a demarcation that was income-based, that you have a demarcation that is benefit-based because it would be more sustainable and more um, uh, or less administratively um, complex. When, you come, when it comes to an income-based um, demarcation, then it raises all sorts of issues, the least of which is things like um, indexation, but definitional issues and, and so forth. So it was felt that then, it would, it, by having a, a benefit-based demarcation, it would create almost um, an aspirational effect when it came to, uh, to promoting buy-ups. There was also some um, discussion around uh, tax subsidies, and at that time, the affordability was identified as, um, as pretty much 8% of, of household income, although there were some sensitivities um, done around that. And the proposal was essentially a direct subsidy of, um, of 50 rand per month. So if we add that 1.66 factor, I think that goes up to around um, 85. Um, and then the suggestion would be a 50% employer subsidy. So in other words, a key focus here was people in, um, in formal employment. And as you could see from that uh, table I showed you earlier, their preferences expressed were, were slightly different or their barriers to entry were, were slightly different. And at that stage, the premium came in at um, 150 rand per, per beneficiary per month. And, um, and the demand side uh, model suggested that that would lead to an increase in coverage of around 3.6 million lives. So in terms of the, the sensitivities on the um, on this slide here, these, these numbers here are the, that um, percentage of, of household income. So the 3.6 million is here. So a premium of 150 um, and, oh sorry, it's here. So premium of 150, the subsidy at 50 rand, then an 8% as the affordability sort of threshold or constraint meant an increase in the covered lives of 3.6 million. If you then to um, increase the affordability uh, threshold to say 12% of household income um, and, um, and, and increase, then, then your, your potential coverage increased to 5.2 million lives. Um, and, it was, and then if you had the premium set at, um, at 200 rand um, a month, so a higher level of, of cover, then you would have equivalent um, increase in cover. You can see some symmetry there in the, in the model, obviously a function of the underlying assumptions, um, but those just to give you an idea of, of the sensitivities. So the recommendations from LIMS were essentially a, a modi modification of the medical scheme environment. So one of the, one of the considerations was, should this be um, something that happens inside the schemes or, or outside of the schemes? And so the, the recommendation was that it should happen within the medical scheme environment, but on a modified um, basis. And essentially, it's a differentiated um, minimum benefit package, um, but the, the existing risk pool would be, identified, would be um, protected by having this demarcation um, in the benefits. 
but still encouraging buy-ups. So in other words, as soon as people want to have that private hospital coverage, and as we saw, there's a relatively strong preference for that, then those buy-ups could be encouraged and facilitated. The, the, the study also identified some um, legislative um, barriers that required further um, investigation, so things that we still continue to identify, the HPCSA rules, um, the scope of practice, and so forth, and also suggested that there should be some engagement with, um, with trade unions and with, um, in the, on the organized business level to, um, to try and um, establish whether um, these structures were, were feasible and, um, and to come up with something that then had, um, had broader stakeholder support. So just some detail in terms of the, um, the recommended um, benefits. You can see that it was um, essentially on a, on a family-structured basis, so still uh, limitations in terms of, um, of GP and, and dental visits, um, formularies for, for, for medication, um, limited optometry, and, um, and, and a, a, a limited list of, um, of CDL um, conditions. Also important to note that in emergency transport to hospital was also included, um, even though the hospital coverage itself wasn't included, because that was um, something that came up quite strongly in the, um, in the household survey, that, that one of the access-related issues was, um, was transport. Um, and then the suggestion was that, um, that the limbs options could offer additional um, benefits, so it wouldn't just be everyone on the same basis, um, but still that private hospital cover would be that demarcating um, benefit to protect the, the risk pool in the existing medical scheme options. Of course, a key issue, as I've highlighted, is the issue around um, risk management, and, um, and of course the exclusion of the, the private hospital cover was, um, was a key part of, of this risk management. But there was also concern around um, buy-down risks and whether there should be rules around um, limiting buy-downs. And, um, and one of the interesting things um, that I'd, I'd almost forgotten was the debate around the user fees, that, um, that in order for this to work, um, it would also require that, um, that user fees at, at public hospitals would have to be eliminated for those individuals who are on the... Um, on the limbs options, otherwise it would almost be self-defeating. Also the suggestion that there would be um, three and, uh, and 12 months um, waiting periods as for um, the existing medical schemes. I think an area where there wasn't consensus was in terms of what rules would apply for, um, for buy-ups. So just to talk about the schemes that, um, that currently have exemption from, um, from PMBs. So, um, what, I mean, basically what has happened since, um, since LIMS. So, I mean, at the moment we essentially, although Sapphire, the Sapphire option on GEMS isn't necessarily an explicit um, exemption, it still has special rules that apply in that um, it, it's offering cover only at, um, at public hospitals for, um, for the hospitalization. Um, motor healthcare, which is a, a former bargaining, or is formed from former bargaining council schemes, has two benefit options with, um, with PMB exemptions. One of them includes private hospital cover at a, at a limited, limited level, and, um, and one of them doesn't. And then there's the building industry scheme, which also has some limited um, private hospital cover. And then other bargaining council schemes like um, FishMed and Golden Arrow, which are essentially primary um, healthcare benefits. And, um, and so we have a, a set of members, I mean, I would say across, if we exclude, if we exclude Sapphire um, out of this, I mean, it's, it's probably not even 100,000 
members, I'm looking at Paresh for confirmation that are across across the um, the, the options of excluding excluding um, Sapphire. So there is some um, precedent in in the um, in the medical scheme space in terms of of of, um, of having these these benefits that sort of could be considered as a as a microcosm of the of the limbs work. But I think there's there's um, there's certainly very limited data and um, very limited consistency um, for for this to be really useful. So it does make it fairly challenging when it comes to um, to the pricing. And certainly looking at um, at what has happened since then, I think some of the key issues where there has been much debate is the the challenge of having something that people can afford, but that is also meaningful. And um, and of course what we see is that a lot of people in this target market have ended up purchasing the um, hospital cash type um, products and um, and we saw from the the work that um, that Barry did for for Finmark um, that you know that are those meaningful valuable benefits so they might be affordable but then they're not necessarily meaningful of course there's a need for um, simplicity and the and the discrete study suggested that there um, that there should be a focus on um, on primary care I think we have to recognize as we have these discussions that this is inextricably, inextricably linked to, um, to the demarcation um, debate because we are really talking about issues around ring fencing and eligibility and the interaction between um, various risk pools. So to what extent can we, can we bring in the, the risk management techniques of mandatory cover and, um, and group cover to try and, um, and address these issues of, of meaningful but affordable benefits? So just to finish off, I, um, I, I, I rehashed, this is a, from, I think it was the 2010, um, when we had the ICA 2010, um, that I talked about this um, access frontier um, which is work done, really, this is a, a basis for a lot of the work that is done by, by FinScope in terms of identifying where the market sits. So um, when we are looking, for example, at our 18%, what is it that is feasible in terms of expanding that 18%? Are we going to expand it to 100% or are we going to expand it to 26%? What is, what is the level which, um, where we can say, well, we've done a good job, we've actually have expanded access where it's feasible? So one looks at, um, at people who have cover now and which the first level is who can we still reach with the cover, the, the market as it exists now. Are there people, and we often debate this, the, this emerging middle class who are not purchasing cover um, when possibly they, they could or they should because of the, um, the anti-selective um, the, the anti behavior that the current environment um, essentially could be considered to be promoting. And then we have the, the market that could be reached in the next um, three to five years. Um, and then we have people who are beyond the reach of the market. So possibly people outside of, um, of employment, people at very low um, levels of income or at, at, at poverty. And then, of course, you have the people who, who don't want it. It could be at the top or the bottom of the, um, of, of the spectrum. So how do we divide the market up? And I think this hasn't come across so clearly. But essentially, the work that was done at that stage was taking the, the existing market and splitting it into those who have cover, those who don't have cover. Then of those that don't have cover, there would be those who don't have access and those who have chosen not to use. Those who have chosen not to use it, then part of that group is the part that could be, um, could be included in the, um, in the existing uh, product space. Um, and part of it is the people who have basically removed themselves from the existing space. 
Where there are access issues, then we have to consider whether there are design opportunities to, um, to include those, um, those people, so excluded by default and excluded by design, um, really relates to the benefit structure and the constraints that, um, that are part of, of whatever the solution is that we structure. And then, of course, you have the people who fall outside of the market. So at that time, um, the market was segmented from an access frontier basis into, um, into those, this is, this is of adults, so um, those with cover, um, those in the, the market redistribution zone are the ones where, in fact, it is almost a state-based intervention, so those are outside of the existing market. The market enablement zone at the end here would be the group who could be brought into, sorry, gone back into the forward. Um, who could be brought into the um, existing coverage through fairly minor um, adjustments to the existing market. And then this was identified here as the, as the group. So, for example, it would be the formerly um, employed falling outside of the current coverage where there could be a, a sort of almost a, a, a regulatory shift to include those, those people in the market. But certainly just enhancing, and I think that's something we mustn't lose sight of, enhancing the existing market, we could almost um, dub double the, the, the coverage from an affordability point of view. So government's role in this, in this um, debate is, is really one of, um, of either providing a service to those who, who, who can't afford it or encouraging the others to, others to provide um, that service. Um, possibly even transferring to consumers the means to buy that service, either by, for example, tax um, dispensations or, or explicit transfers. At one stage, there was a suggestion of, um, of transfers via the risk equalization um, mechanisms. But essentially, it's creating this um, enabling environment. And I think that's almost what we need to do as part of the, the debates that we're having today, is to define what that enabling environment is. So how should these kind of benefits be delivered? Through what kind of, um, of entity? Um, what is the role of competition in terms of promoting um, innovation? So there's obviously both positive and, and um, negative effects of, um, of competition. And how should the, um, the delivery mechanisms be structured from the point of view? Are there, are there opportunities for public and private um, partnerships? What about the supply side? And, um, and are there additional revenue sources or revenue structures that can be um, harnessed to, to make cover more affordable? So um, in, my, um, in my capacity of promoting research in the profession, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, although I don't want to suggest by putting the slide up there that we don't have sufficient information to actually move this debate forward. But I think we must also bear in mind that, um, that we have to... We have to have the facts, we have to have the information, rather than, um, than making proposals on the basis of, um, of supposition. And I think updating some of the research, detailed research work that was done as part of that LIMS project um, will be very useful. So looking at, at the, uh, the changes in the, the, the distribution of the, of the population, looking at those supply side issues, those supply side um, constraints, um, that were identified, I think, will be very useful in terms of moving this, um, this process forward. So, um, so the regulatory role, I think, is a, is a very important one in terms of creating this, um, this enabling um, environment. And, um, and this was, in fact, the, the concluding 
slide I had in a presentation in that presentation back um, in 2010. So um, we have the, the the discussion there was a lot around um, reinsurance at that at that time, but um, but the role of um, the role of the of the regulator, the role of, versus the role of say competition, where um, there's an argument to say that that market forces can promote rivalry, which leads to innovation and market expansion. But in the space of of, of healthcare, where there's some um, distortion of those market forces, then there is a, a clear role for the state in terms of, of leadership and coordination um, and supervision, but certainly not to the extent that it, um, it stifles that, that innovation that is, is so desperately required. And I think that's it. Perhaps questions of clarity before we get into too much debate until we have the other presentations. Okay, good, there's none. Oh, very. <laughs> now we can hear you. Um, but to what extent, on the flip side, should we um, tolerate some experimentation in the market to see what works? I mean, uh, I don't think that we'll get the solution right if we do a piece of research and we put out guidelines that say do X, Y, Z and the product must look exactly like this with these limits and these relationships, etc. Um, and then let everybody try to work within a very narrow confines there. I think we must obviously be responsible in terms of the, the principles that we want to be embedded in those models and there must be obviously guiding regulations. But for me, there needs to be a little bit of experimentation or tolerance for experimentation to see what will actually work and what will actually fly. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what worked well or not well, depending how you look at it in the, in the funeral market. Mm. And I think, you know, we, we could, we could uh, if, if we just allow at least a little bit of that, I think we'd see products that are more successful in the long term. Yeah. No, I agree with you, Barry. I think that, I mean, part of the problem here is that the the, the, the complexities are so great and the, you know, the interaction of the various factors are so great that it's almost impossible to, to completely understand how that works without actually doing it. Um, so it's a question, I mean, I suppose it's like the, um, although that is a bit frustrating, it's like the pilot, um, you know, the pilot models for the, for the, for the NHI. Um, where for all sorts of reasons they're not actually working so well. But the idea was that you would, you would put something out there, collect the information about it, modify and, and continue. So I think in a way that, that having, getting started, I mean we have these, we have almost these test cases that have been, been running but in a very sort of un, um, unmonitored kind of way in terms of the existing um, exempted uh, options. Um, that we, we do need to almost just get started, um, but in a way that, that there's still protection for the individuals and that there is, it's, everything is not cast in stone. So you have to still allow for that modification and development to take place along the way. And I guess from a regulatory, I mean, it's easy for us to say that, from a regulatory perspective, how do you do that? So. 
Another question, sorry. Yeah. Just one from me, if I may. Um, can you just remind us who the stakeholders were and the kind of buy-in, particularly from healthcare providers, from Department of Health and the CMS? In the in the limbs in, in the, the limbs. limbs work. Okay. So, um, well, it, it, the 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 project was um, was coordinated by um, by Johnny Brumberg um, at the time. Um, but there was there was there was strong participation from um, from the hospital groups. I remember that in terms of the um, the the demand, oh, sorry, the supply side, the the hospital groups, the pharmaceutical groups were were heavily involved, as long as as well as many of the the, the managed care providers. Um, Graham, I think you can probably help me with this. I think the BHF was um, was involved, but people were sort of participating in their um, in their individual. Um, capacities, but when I look at the list of, of individuals who participated on each of the four sort of um, task teams, it was um, it was really, but it, it was private sector participation. So um, the the regulator, the Department of Health, was not part of it. The regulator was involved from an ob observa observation point of view, not so much from a participation point of view. Um, Rosen, I'm, I'm thinking about the. Um, thing you mentioned about demarcating between the target market for limbs and the, the people who should be at the higher one, and the tool of using the benefit instead mm. of income mm. um, as a demarcating thing. And I'm wondering how effective using benefit instead of income would be. Because I'm thinking of someone, say they, uh, they earn, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000, and maybe they are young, then they don't think that they'll ever really need uh, private cover. I see that kind of person as being someone to whom this product would be attractive, mm. and that that may hurt the risk pools above. And on a related matter, um, can you maybe help me to understand why um, using income as the demarcating mechanism would be so onerous as to make the other option be more attractive? Okay, good. Yeah, those those are, are good points to unpack. I mean that that issue of the the movement between the two different sections, I think, was something, as I recall at the time, that received much debate. Um, that possibly they would be you would only be allowed to move one way. You could only buy up. You couldn't buy down because the buy downs, you know, that's of course the major the major concern because it's not as if if you look at that. I mean, if you index those salary levels, it's not as if we don't have high levels of participation at the moment, you know, there's, in the in the medical scheme medical scheme space. So, um, so that so that movement, but it, it, it the intention was that almost the, you know, people buying the the medical scheme cover now are people who are either anti-selecting or risk averse, and um, and so you would want to take steps to almost promote the risk aversion, so people understanding. That's the whole insurance is sold and not bought argument. But people understanding and perhaps by becoming familiar with how the environment operates, that then their risk aversion would be such that they aspirationally want to, to purchase the additional cover. I mean, when it comes to, um, to an income-based um, demarcation, it does become um, very complex. And I think the fact that, that there are very... That open schemes at the moment do not have income-based tables because of the difficulty, except for restricting access to lower um, cost options, um, because of the difficulty of defining an income which is common to everyone. I mean, I remember 
um, back in the days when we could do um, experience rating on, on open schemes, that um, this open scheme that I was looking at, the one of the, and it had all sorts of, of industries on it, um, you know, manufacturing companies and so forth, but the, the, the group with the lowest um, income on that, on that scheme was one of the large um, audit firms. And of course, it was because they were very clever in how they defined their income. So, um, so to avoid getting into those um, kind of, of, of debates, you know, around what you bring in and allowances and all of that, then that was why it was felt that, um, that an income-based definition would be, would be fairly complex.